This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash bookstacked. That's audibletrial.com slash bookstacked. It was funny because Luke came to me and, and he says, I, I want you to write the part about the treatment. And I think he was a little bit afraid that I would say no because it's, you know, it's too painful to write about or, or something. But I said, well, of course. And, you know, try and, try and take that one from me. Um, that one's mine to write. That's nobody else's to write. Because I'm the one who has the experience with that. Nobody else can capture that. From Bookstack.com, you're listening to About the Author. I'm your host, Saul Marquez. Today, we're sitting down with Leanna Gardner, author of Seventh Grade Revolution, to learn how she's taken challenging life obstacles and fed them into her passion for writing. Her story's coming up in just a few moments, so stay with us. So I had the opportunity to talk to Leanna Gardner over the phone, and honestly, she has an incredible and inspiring story that I'm so excited to share with you. But to get to know her a little bit, you should know that she mostly grew up in Southern California, and the way she describes her childhood, she makes it almost sound like an old movie. My childhood is one of those that I don't think really happens too much anymore. It's kind of like watching, I don't know if you ever saw uh, the film called Suburbia, and where everybody goes out at the same time to go to work, and they all start the cars at the same time, and you know, just like this little procession. And it was like that, where all kids would play together on the street. We would have sleepovers at everybody's house. We would, you know, we'd build forts and tents and all all the stuff, tree houses. We would toilet paper the street. Uh, and literally, I mean the street, not somebody's house. Uh, what, how, those, because just, what we do, yeah, go ahead and explain that. Uh, we would use like the the uh, telephone poles, and we would like put a canopy across, and then we would hold it up for cars to go through. So it was hide and seek everything, and it was just like one big family sort of environment where didn't matter if you were at somebody else's house, if you were out of line, you were going to hear it from whoever's parent happened to be around. It was a small town atmosphere in a large suburban area, which is just uh, really an anomaly. Can you describe yourself as a kid? Like, were you really into reading? Were you very inventive? And, or did you like writing as, as when you were really young? Uh, you know, the, the word nerd didn't exist then, but I was the nerd. I was the <laughs> geek. But I also was very athletically inclined. So you know, I played, I swam. Um, I did competitive swimming. I played softball. But at the same time, I was also the one who always had a book in her hand. And I read a lot. I started writing my first book when I was nine because I had run out of things to read and what was available, I, I read a particular book that when I finished reading it, I thought, you know, 
this book is supposed to be for my age group, and that really doesn't have anything that I'm really interested in. A couple of my friends and I got together and we said, yeah, there's nothing. We, we want to write something that we want to know about. So we talked about what the story was going to be, and everybody had something to say when it came to what the story was going to be about. When it came time to do the actual writing of the story, I'm the only, only one who ever put any words on the page. <laughs> so we would, you know, we'd get together and we'd talk about what, what it was and come in and everybody's having ideas. And then I'd go home and put things down and i come back and I'd go, okay, did you write your part? No, no. <laughs> Okay, well, let's talk about this again. And it, you, it was just, it was comical. So they were kind of and more then, like you know, a brainstorming team, it sounds like. Yeah, they, they were the brainstorming team, and I would actually do the writing. You started writing at such a young age. At what point did that become something that you wanted to do seriously? At what point did you say, I actually want to write a book and have it published? I've always wanted to write books. But when I was writing the first one, uh, I started looking into the publishing industry and the ability to make a living wage. And it just didn't seem, except for the few, to be a possible aspect. So I, you know, I kind of thought, well, I want to do this, but I, I'm probably going to have to do something else and just do this on the side. And that was kind of my mindset. And so I decided, you know, I was either going to be a psychologist or a lawyer and neither one of those materialized um, for a lot of different reasons. But what really made it a more serious endeavor for me was I have a younger sister and she was reading at the time the Sweet Valley High series. And I was incensed because She's, she was reading nothing but fluff because those books, and yes, I, I have read them as well, but they are fluff and she wasn't reading anything else. And I thought, you know what? She really needs something of substance to read so that she understands the difference between uh, something to occupy your mind when you're tired and something that really involves you in bringing you into the story. So something less surface and, and has a lot more depth. Okay. And that's when I decided that I was going to, I had, I'd had a dream and it was so vivid and I knew it was a story that needed to be told. And so that's when I started writing uh, the first novel that I ever completed, uh, which was Miss Fit McCabe. Can you briefly share what that story is about? The Misfit McCabe series is what I would call an introspection on the grief process. Katie McCabe is daughter of a single parent and about the midpoint of the book, her father passes away as well. Now, he has already had to send her to some relatives to live with the relatives while he goes into the hospital for testing. So she's dealing with being in a new environment uh, with people she really doesn't know, and she's grieving for her father and trying to make sense out of life. Uh, when I started it, I only intended to write the one book, but 
the kids who read it wanted more. Um, there's going to be six books because I, ha I have four of them written. There are two more that I need to write. Our plan is to get all of them written and then we'll, we're going to re-release uh, the ones that have already been published. We'll re-release those and we're going to do it like one, one book a quarter so that you can get the whole thing in a fairly short period of time without having to wait a year for each book. Was that an easy process? Did it come to you easily or was it difficult? Once I figured out a key element in my own writing style, it came easily. Until then, I tore up every first page I wrote. I would read it back, what I had written, and it just sounded to me, and I, this is me being overly critical of my own work, it sounded stupid. And I just, that wasn't going to work. So I threw that page away and I start again. And it just didn't work. And so I thought, you know what, I just, I need to clear my head and try and figure out why every single page I'm writing sounds just doesn't flow the way I want it to flow. And I realized that what was bothering me were the dialogue tags. And I know that sounds like a, a weird thing yeah, to bother and all I guess it bothers right? me in anybody else's work. Uh -huh. What bothers me was just having them. Hmm. Because the way I was writing, I felt like the reader should know. And if the reader already knows who is speaking, then I don't need that particular dialogue tag. With the exception of the children's work that I do, you will not find a dialogue tag in in my work. And it just has become, that's part of my writing style. Hmm. Do you think it's important for writers to be able to hone in and kind of figure out what their writing quirks are like that? How important do you think that is to like developing voice when it comes to writing? I, I actually think it's very important for writers to understand what their quirks are. Now, in my case, that yes, it's a quirk. That's my quirk. Um, it's not to me a detriment to the end product. Mm -hmm. But if there's a quirk that you have that's on a more negative basis, and if you recognize that you have those particular quirks, then when you go into the editing process, it's very easy for you to identify those things that you need to target to fix first. So it depends on whether the quirk is a positive thing or, or a neutral thing or a negative right. thing. Um, but it is, I think, very important for an author to know what their quirks are because there's so many times when you hand it over to somebody, you don't realize that you've done a particular thing. And when it's pointed out to you, you should really add it to a list of things to watch for the next for the next book. Mm -hmm. Okay, you've written Misfit McCabe, you, you have these four books, and originally then you self-published them. Is that right? Right, I originally self-published uh, Misfit McCabe and then this two of the others. And the reason for, for that was uh, my sister's daughter was uh, then the age of my sister when I had first started the journey with Misfit McCabe. And what had happened was uh, when I was still green, 
uh, and still actually writing Mr. McCabe, I had gone to a writer's conference and ran into, I listened to some agents who were talking about the whole agent process. And I was at this conference because I knew I needed to know more. I knew I didn't know nearly enough about how to finish this book up and how to polish it and what are the next steps. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm there just to, to learn. Well, one of the agents after the conference was over was standing outside and she has this group of people around her and they're all asking questions and she's answering and I'm listening because I'm just going to soak it in. I just want to be a sponge here and just take all of this information and, and capture it in my head. And she turns to me and looks at me and says, and what do you want to know? And I'm thinking, oh, I don't have a question, but we'll just throw this one out here. What, you know, how, how do I, what would be the next step for a juvenile fiction book? Because at that point, um, juvenile fiction was not the huge thing it is today. Right. And there were very few agents that actually handled juvenile fiction. And she says, well... I've got a friend in New York who handles juvenile fiction, and we're talking about putting together a cooperative so that we can look, you know, we can basically refer clients back and forth, uh, depending on the strength. And I said, oh, that's great. And she said, so send me the first 50 pages. And I'm thinking, oh, crap, I'm not even done with the book. And she <laughs> <laughs> But she wants the 50 pages so then. Right. So I, I go home and I'm, I'm polishing up those pages as quickly as I can. And I sent it off on the day before Thanksgiving. That Sunday, I get a phone call. And she had come into the office because she couldn't stand to be away from the office for that long. And my manuscript was sitting there, which I didn't even expect it to be there yet. And she picked up the, the 50 pages, read them, and loved it. And... Wham, bam, I had an agent. Wow. Um, must have felt, been amazing. So it was just like, yeah, this never happened. Right. Um, it, it was rare then, and it's even rarer now. Uh, so I had an agent, and I'm thinking, oh, okay. And she goes, okay, so send me the rest of the manuscript. I'm like, oh, now i got to finish writing this book. So, you know, I pulled out all the stuff and, and got it over to her. Um, and the process especially at that point in time, was extremely slow. I had called to find out what was going on just because it had been a while. And it turned out that the agent that I had was ill and she ended up having to close down. Okay, I'm going to try sending it out myself. So I sent it out. Um, HarperCollins was, you know, nearly bit on it at that point. Uh, but then I got it back, which is okay. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so this book was good enough to get an agent. It was good enough to interest one of the big guys. Hit a point where my sister's daughter is now the age that she was when I started writing the book. And I, and she didn't realize that I wrote. And I thought, okay, this has got to stop. She doesn't know that I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm going to publish this thing because now you could, where previously you couldn't. Um, and, you know, this is at the very, I, I think it was even before Create Space uh, 
had been created. Yeah. Because you published the book in 2007, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so there I was really on the cusp of self-publishing. My sole intention was simply to get some copies from my family and maybe a few friends to say, hey, this is what, you know, this is what I've done. And then I get an email from someone who wants it to participate in a Teen Choice Award contest in Montreal, Public Pearson Prize. I'm not expecting a whole lot. And it was first runner up in that contest. Wow. And then the following year, uh, Nowhere Feels Like Home, which was the second book that I wrote in this series, was a, it was a winner. And so I just, you know, which again, it was surprising to me. I never expected that. I just, I was so honored that she had been asked to participate. And right. that must have been so incredible I figured to get that, that news. Yeah. So I'm like, well, not air. <laughs> so it, it was just, you know, it was really nice. So to me, it's, it's a very, it's a quieter series. It's not one of these huge action adventures because it really is an introspective study from a psychological standpoint of what kids go through when they have major life occurrences and are dealing with grief. When we come back, we'll find out about the life-changing news Leanna receives and how that fed her already strong passion for writing. We'll have that story for you right after this break. Looking to stay inspired after this podcast is over? You don't need us to remind you that some of the best inspiration comes from reading books. And what better way to consume books than with Audible? the subway or in the car, when you're mowing the lawn or doing dishes, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. You can always catch up on your TBR list with an audiobook. And for listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audibletrial.com bookstacked. Audible's selection of over 1,800 titles includes books like Victoria Aveyard's Red Queen series and Tomi Ediemi's Children of Blood and Bone. Again, go to audibletrial.com slash bookstacked for your free audiobook. And don't forget that even if you quit the trial, you get to keep the book. So in 2013 then, you had, you were clearly, you had, you had written these books. They had been well received. Um, and then I think it was in the summer of 2013, that's when you got some devastating news. Yes. Um, it, well, actually, it, it's funny. Um, you can call it devastating news. Um, for me, it's just part of life and life happens. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think my doctor was more devastated than I was. And uh, just, I had been in, I had um, a flare-up of uh, diverticulitis. So he wanted to confirm it, so he drew some blood, and you know, I come back for the blood results, and he put the paper down on the exam table uh, between us, and I took one look at it, and I'm like, okay, here we go, because I knew that the white blood counts were way out of whack. Mm-hmm. You know, he's all somber, and he says, you know, I just, I need to tell you that, you know, you got your results, and yes, you do have a flare-up, and well. 
give you the antibiotics, but you also have leukemia. And I said, okay. And so he's waiting for me to have like this, this reaction, which I'm sure that most people are going to react when you say you, you've got leukemia. And my, rean- my honest reaction is, okay, <laughs> I'm waiting to know what's next. Wow. Right? So, and then he starts stuttering because he doesn't know how to handle this patient. He's just not <laughs> reacting. And, you know, he's thinking I'm in shock. He's like, it's going to be okay. I said, yeah, I know it's going to be okay. And he, he's looking at me like, I'm going to be fine, so tell me what we do. <laughs> right. I mean, that's just incredible to me because I think for so many people when they were, they'd hear that, I mean, obviously that that would really hit them, I think, you know, but you seem to have this this wonderful optimism about it regardless i mean how how are you able to keep like that positive attitude in the face of of an obstacle like that well i actually have been trained for it to be candid and i know that sounds a little bit weird but before my parents were married My dad was diagnosed with something that at the time was considered fatal, uh, and that's ulcerative colitis. And they told him he had five to six years to live. So they had, this is, you know, they're not even married at this point. So they had to make the decision on whether they should get married or not because he had this devastating disease that was going to kill him. And they decided to go ahead and get married because they wanted to have the time, whatever time he had left, they wanted to be able to spend it together. So I grew up with this idea of you can have something devastational and yet still live with your life. My dad still worked. He, you know, he didn't give up everything because he was going to die and just sit there and wait for it to happen. He continued working. He continued living his life. Um, when I was a teenager, uh, he went into the hospital for, because uh, at this point he had turned to cancer. He had uh, a surgery, which again at the time was extremely experimental, and the success rate was less than 50%. And he came through it successfully, which, you know, again, it wasn't really anticipated, but then a year later, they realized that they had to take out more of his intestines, and he went back for an ileostomy. And he had another cancer. He had several cancers. Mm -hmm. So there were several cancer surgeries, and there was one when it had come back in two years, and he had relapsed in two years, and it was uh, on what, something that had been left behind in the original surgery. And I knew at that point that with that, he really didn't have much longer. And when he told me what the situation was, I got teary-eyed, you know, and I'm human, and I am like the biggest emotional staff you ever want to run across. <laughs> um, so I'm very emotional for other people. I'm totally non-emotional for myself, but I am very emotional for everybody else. Mm -hmm. So when he tells me this, I just kind of 
sat back and I'm starting to well up with Karis and he goes, you stop that right now. He goes, that doesn't mean anything. Because we're going to, you know, it was taken out and there was cancer on it, but it's gone. I was like, okay. So, and then he was gone in the next couple of years. When you're raised in that kind of environment, when you hear, it was never a case where I expected to get through life without hearing the words that I have cancer. So I got to do chemo for six months and then I was in remission for two years. And I fell out of remission in, I believe, April, between April to June of 2016. And I've been taking an oral chemo ever since. And um, since the, I, I have a zero immune system at this point, uh, well, not zero, but my immune system is extremely weak. So I end up having to have uh, some immune boosting uh, infusions so we can at least try and get me to have a little bit more normal of a life. I am fortunate that my day job allows me to work from home. So we've pretty much just done that. Um, so I work downstairs for my day job and then I come upstairs and I write. Wow. That's really incredible. Um, I do want to ask, like, going through all of that, how has that informed or changed your writing at all? I think the biggest impact to my writing has been the exhaustion because everything makes you tired. Uh, the leukemia itself, you have fatigue with that. With the particular chemo I'm on, you have fatigue with that. I do have my writing and I will continue working on my writing. In fact, uh, my agent, because I do have uh, an agent again, mm -hmm. she is adamant that I get a particular middle grade series that I'm working on written as quickly as I can, but it's just kind of like, okay, I need to clear off the, the to-do list and there's only so much energy I have in a day and some days I just don't have it and other days I'm good. I know, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, this five book series you're working on, that's the collaborative children's chapter book series that... No, no, actually, this is something that else. Isn't. Okay, we've <laughs> <laughs> got a lot of projects there's, there's, going um, on. <laughs> oh yes, I do. Um, I, I my agent got me involved with a collaborative project for the children, mm -hmm. and what it is is um, Luke Matthews has created a chapter book series about. It's called Timmy and the Golden Line Cameron, and Timmy is a little boy who gets bullied in school. And he is, he, he prays to God for help and he ends up seeing this golden line Tamarin in his backyard. Well, it turns out that he's the only one who can see the golden line Tamarin. So it's, we're dubbing it the Guardian Angel Animal Series. So we're taking for each of the books a social issue and we pair that social issue up. The first one is bullying. The second one is really a mixed family where you have a situation where um, two parents come together. They each have kids and dealing with that. And each of the animals that the kid who is having the, the problem gets is an endangered species. So we're also raising awareness 
for endangered species. It's just, it's a really cool project. Yeah, it sounds to be really working awesome. on. One of those books is also about leukemia, is that right? Yes. It was funny because Luke came to me and, and he says, I, you know, I, I want you to write the part about the treatment. And I think he was a little bit afraid that I would say no because it's, you know, it's too painful to write about or, or something. But I said, well, of course, I, you know, try and try and take that one from me. Um, that one's mine to write. That's nobody else's to write. Because I'm the one who has the experience with that. I'm the one who sits there with the chemicals dripping into her body and getting nauseous and, and feeling all those feelings. Nobody else can capture that in our particular collaborative group. So uh, at this point, we have uh, Luke Matthews, who, again, was the series creator. And um, I'm the primary writer on most of the books so far. Uh, and we have Olivia Clare, who is also working with us, and Jared Cross. So there's four of us. We're a really, we work really well together. Um, so it's just, it's, it's one of our joys. And we're being very, very particular about how we proceed uh, with this project because we really want to make sure that when it comes out, we're hitting all of the right notes and getting it in the right, right ears. Well, I only have a couple questions left. I just wanted to bring this up because when I first asked if I could interview you, and I talked about maybe t talking about your books and stuff, you said that more than wanting to promote your books, you wanted to promote a message. And I'm going to read what you actually wrote. Um, you said you wanted to okay. promote. You said you wanted to promote a message about not letting anything get in the way of following your passion. No matter what the obstacles, keep moving forward and don't let those obstacles stop you from achieving your dreams. Why is that message so important to you? Because I think too many times we get uh, society, uh, our families, everyone is telling us what we can't do. The, the kids that I'm writing for, I want them to see that you don't stop because somebody said it was stupid or you don't stop because uh, you know, your parents said, well, you'll never make any money at that or you're never going to be a success. You know, what, what about the kid who wants to go into theater? Well, you don't tell them that they're not going to be able to do it. You encourage them to express themselves. And you know what? They may not ever achieve what you think that they are going for, but they may achieve something totally different that's wonderful in a totally different way. The things that we discover, the things that advance society, are all because somebody said, I don't believe in this limitation. I'm going to find out what more there is. We would never have, a, you know, the polio vaccine. It's only because somebody didn't stop looking for an answer. Kind of looking back on <laughs> all the things we've covered, we've covered a lot. I know like Misfit McCabe talks about grief and the book that you're working on now, you know, you're touching on things like leukemia and other social issues. Why mm -hmm. do you think it's important to talk about those topics with younger audiences? Because in many situations, we as a society do not think that kids 
can handle those particular topics. And my take is we need for them to talk about those things because that's their life. For kids, I think that one of the biggest messages I can send or the things that they need to hear the most is what I alluded to with uh, my story about the two girls is that they're not the only ones. That they are not the only ones who are who are experiencing this particular aspect of life. They're not the only ones who is going who are going through these types of emotions. And by writing stories that deal with these things, they a don't feel quite so alone, and b they may learn different ways to deal with the situation. And Maybe that doesn't help you deal with it right then or feel, you know, that you're not able to stop the way you're behaving. But it gives you that, that basis for at least understanding. And from there, you can learn and change. From there, you can grow. That is Leanna Gardner, and just as a reminder, her original book series, Misfit McCabe, is no longer being sold. Like she said earlier, it's going to be uh, re-released. However, she does have one book currently out on the market. I had read an article on uh, the internet that I found in Twitter that was talking about a school experience where the teachers brought in the kids, they told them that a revolution had happened over the weekend because they were upset with how the school was being run. They won. Now they had to formulate their government and run the school. So they're studying the American Revolution. And I thought that was an incredible, incredible teaching experience. Yeah. And I just, I loved it. And immediately in my head, I had these helicopters going off and I'm, cause I'm thinking, what if we started off with an, a classroom experience and then somehow it turns real? And so we just we ended up um, with seventh grade, you know, in school defending the school against the FBI who wants to close it down. And <laughs> there you have in a nutshell seventh grade revolution. That and there's awesome. a treasure, yeah, there's a treasure that's buried in the school, which is what the FBI is trying to get, and the seventh graders have to beat them to it. That book is called 7th Grade Revolution. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. And just as an extra note, if you end up wanting to read her future children's book series, she's going to be publishing that under a different name. So be sure to look up the name L.K. Griffey. about the author if you liked the show please leave us a rating and review in apple podcasts doing that will make it easier for other people to find us and it'll also make it easier for me to book guests for future episodes if you have a comment suggestion or question go to author.bookstacked.com there's a comment form at the bottom of the page and you can use that to get in touch and i want to give a quick thank you to my peers at brigham young university as well as the bookstack team for their invaluable feedback throughout this entire process Next Friday is going to be our final episode. We're going to be speaking with author Tyler Whitesides, 
who took his college custodial job and used that to launch a full-time book career. You're not going to want to miss that episode, so be sure to look for it next Friday.